Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor. We are playing with the order of worship. Nobody panic. Just hang on to your wigs and keys. My wife and Stephen on the front row are already freaking out. Uh, we're going to be fine. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. In the overflow, welcome to you guys. Hope you're following right along with us. We are doing things a little bit out of order, but uh, I think it will make sense to you in a moment. We're in the message series entitled Red Letters, John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And his response to her is important for us today. And you'll find his words in red letters. That's what we're doing. But not only this message series, at this present moment in Woodburn Baptist Church's life, we are in between worship leaders. We're uh, just experienced a resignation of uh, our buddy Andrew Causey. Love him so much. God bless him. Uh, beginning a prayerful search now for a new worship leader. And it seems to be a good moment to stop as a church family and talk a little bit about worship. So we're going to use Jesus' red letters to do that this morning. These words from Jesus will help us remember what Sunday mornings, but also our whole lives are, are all about. John chapter 4 begin with me. I'm going to not read that whole story of the woman at the well. I'm going to start in verse 19. Just understand, I'll catch you up. Jesus has just uh, mentioned to the lady without her telling him, he's already told her that he knows all about her five divorces and uh, her living boyfriend. So when Jesus brings that up, she changes the subject, as you probably would too. Uh, she changes the subject and she switches the subject to worship. And Jesus' response is important. So let's dig in and, and we'll follow from here. Uh, changing the subject. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, here we go, red letters. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter, underline the words, no longer matter, it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in, say the words, spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in, say the words, spirit and truth. Red letters, Jesus talks about worship. Okay, let's define some terms. What, what is worship? Now, for most of us, we probably just think worship is what we do on Sunday morning. So whatever it says in the bulletin or whatever our worship leaders lead us through, we do that and we call that worship. But honestly, worship is much more important, much deeper than that. If you think that it's just what we do on Sunday morning, then you've already missed the point. So here you go, very simple definition of worship. Worship is simply responding to God. Worship is responding to God. Now, when we use the word respond, that, of course, means that God has already moved toward us. God has already spoken to us. God has already blessed us with his presence. Our worship is simply a response to that. That's why worship is not simply what we do on Sunday morning, because God is always blessing us with his presence. You understand that? God is always blessing us with his word. God is always moving toward us, and then we move back toward him in response. Worship is simply responding 
to God. It's always responding to God. It's very important that we always remember that God has already made the first move. And we respond to him, and that response is worship. Now, it can take many forms, and it happens everywhere with every breath you take. Every breath should be a response to God. God blesses us with his presence, and we respond with our attention, with our focus. God blesses us. God blesses us with his holiness, with the awesomeness of his holiness, and we respond sometimes with our silence. God blesses us with good things and we respond to him with with, with our praise. You understand, worship is always a response to God. And so our whole lives should be lived as a response to God. His blessing, his presence, his goodness. My life is a response to him. My life is worship and so is yours. All of life is, is worship. However, as a church body, we we gather for worship. So that's very important. And it takes on a very different kind of life when we all understand that all of life is worship. When when my entire week is spent in response to God, then it is a a joyful privilege to come together with you. And all of a sudden, our our lives of worship culminate in this this one big celebration of our life in, in Christ, in this one big worship service, as we call it. So it's not that we wait till we get together. We're always doing this. We're always responding to God. But when we come together, it just begins to get especially good. It's especially good when we as worshipers in spirit and truth can come and worship him together. And God is pleased with that. And God commands and intends that we do this together, that we worship. And since Sunday morning is the primary time when we gather for worship, this is our main main worship opportunity together, then understand this becomes very important. I would go so far as to say that, that our Sunday mornings, our worship life together is the very center of everything else that happens at this church. Worship is the center. A while back, I'm a runner and uh, my wife got concerned that I'm always running out somewhere, you know, 10 miles from home by myself. And, and, and what happens if something happens to me? So I decided to, uh, decided to get an army dog tag and, and attach it to my shoe. And that way, if I'm out there running and, and I fall over dead or whatever, at least I'll have my address and know where to ship the body. So, uh, I'm serious. So I... I went into this little downtown uh, army surplus store to buy dog tags. You ever done that? Oh, you should. You should. So I walked in, and there was this, I mean, I don't know where this guy came from. He just crawled out of a foxhole. I mean, this guy was obviously a veteran, and I mean, he was fresh from it. And he was still up in it. I mean, he was still in his head fighting a war. And so I came in and said, how you doing, sir? I would like to buy a dog tag. A dog tag. And the man said, I'm sorry, we only sell those in pairs. I said, well, actually, sir, I really only need one. Can I just buy one? He said, no, I have to tell you, sir, you need two. I I, I said, I don't think I need two. I really think I just need one. Can I buy one? He said, you got to have two you got to have identification on both ends of your body. I said, well, sir, actually, I just was planning on attaching one to my shoe. He said, no, you need one around your head, too. You need an identification around your neck. 
I said, just out of curiosity, why do I need that? He said, in case your head gets separated from your body. In case my head gets separated from my body. Now, I'm just, it's, it's a gruesome thought, but, but if my head were separated from my body, wouldn't the dog tag around my neck fall off? I, I mean, wouldn't the dog tag fall off? I bought two. I, 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 bought, I bought two. Anyway, it is the most gruesome thought ever that your head could get separated from your body. But, but understand, throughout Scripture... When worship is the topic in the New Testament, very, very easily the the language shifts to the language of the body of Christ. When the New Testament wants to describe what happens and how we work together when we come together to worship, the New Testament tends to slip into body language, the language that, that all of us are members of the body of Christ. It's a way of saying that all of us have different functions. It's a way of picturing how all of us together are truly one body. But also, very, very importantly, it's a way of stressing that we are the body and Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the body. And there's only one head, understand, or else you have a monstrosity. There is one head, and that head is Christ. And we are his body Now, truly, in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from him. There is nothing that will ever separate us, the body of Christ, from the head. But at the very same time, you know and I know how very out of touch with Christ we can become. And sadly, especially in worship. Sometimes, especially in worship, we who are supposed to function as a body of Christ, we become very, very disconnected from the head of the body. And when that happens, it is a gruesome and devastating thing for the church, and it absolutely will kill worship every time. You understand? This is why Jesus says to the woman that the time is coming. Indeed, it's now here. The time is coming. Indeed, it's now here. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Something's happening. Indeed, Jesus says something has already happened that that, that makes worship possible. What is it? What's he talking about? And again, he just told the lady, you've had five husbands, and now you've got a living boyfriend. He is not your husband. And she switches the subject to worship. I don't know how interested she is in worship. But she still switches the subject, and honestly, if you go out into the world and talk to people, they will often do the same sort of thing that the woman does here. Now, her topic is worship, but she's not that interested in it. Honestly, it sounds more like she just sort of wants to switch the subject to religion in general. And so she says, well, (laughs) I can see that you're some sort of prophet. Let me ask you a question. My ancestors, in other words, my mama and my grandma and all the people I've ever known, we're Samaritans, and we worship in Samaria. And for us, it's Mount Gerizim. It's it's Mount Gerizim, and and that is the focus of of our worship. But I know that that you're Jewish, right? And the Jews tend to think that that the mountain in Jerusalem, that the Temple Mount, is the only place to worship. Who do you think is right? She wants to change the subject, so she changes it sort of to the worship wars of her day. Who who do you think's right? 
Which mountain is, is the true mountain to worship on? What do you think about that? Everybody's talking about that. What about that? And that's when Jesus says, dear woman, the time is coming. Indeed, it's already here when the mountain is not going to be the focus of your worship. Interesting. Because what Jesus is talking about there are human traditions. Now stay with me. Human traditions. And when it comes to worship, human traditions become very, very important to us. You know, us being humans and all. Human tradition becomes very, very important. But what Jesus says here is more important, and that is human traditions don't matter. They don't matter. That the time is coming when human tradition will not be the focus of your worship. Indeed, that time is already here, Jesus says. You see, if you were to meet a, a modern-day woman like this woman, she might say, you know, my, my, my daddy's family, they were Presbyterians, but, but my mama's family, they were Pentecostals. Who's right? I mean, there's nothing more different than Presbyterians and Pentecostals. You, you understand? I mean, who's right? Are you supposed to sit in your pew and, and, and act very somber and still? Or are you supposed to roll around on the floor and speak in tongues and, and, and wrangle snakes? Who's right? Jesus says, uh, time is coming. Indeed, it's already here where that stuff will matter. Can you get to the point where you begin to see how this stuff doesn't matter. Human traditions don't matter. And it's so difficult because we love our traditions. We love, we love our traditions. I'm a 48-year-old man. I just had a birthday this week. I, before I was pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, I was your song leader. I, I was your music director. I spent seven years serving in that capacity, so you've taught me a lot about worship, and I think I've taught you, we've learned together uh, about worship. And I remember the songs that we sang in the 80s together. I, I taught them to you. I, I loved th those songs. But I also, how, I remember how even in those days, there was a segment of the congregation that, that loved other songs. And there was a time when every time we had an older person die at Woodburn Baptist Church, they would ask us to sing, us being me or, or, or WB or one of the other uh, choir members, ask us to sing a song called Beautiful Isle of Somewhere. Anybody know that song? You remember that song? Be Beautiful Isle of Somewhere? There was a stretch of about maybe 10 years where at every funeral, every funeral, we sang Beautiful Isle of, of Somewhere. But the funny thing is, we haven't sung that now in years. Why do you think that is? It, it, it's kind of a harsh answer, but it's also the truest answer I know how to tell you. Everybody who really loved this song, Beautiful Isle of Somewhere, they are now on the Beautiful Isle of Somewhere. <laughs> I mean, God bless all their souls. But everybody who loved the song, Beautiful Isle of Somewhere, and understand, they loved that song. They loved it. They grew up singing it. Beautiful Isle of Somewhere was their song about heaven. 
and they loved it. And, and they loved it so much that they would say, at my funeral, that's the song to sing. And we sang Beautiful Isle of Somewhere for a whole stretch of years until all the people who loved that song went there. But understand that their kids and grandkids, which would be some of you folks, you, you grew up singing other songs. You know, I can remember, I was a kid, but I can remember when Bill Gaither first emerged on the scene. Bill Gaither was cool in the 70s in the same way that Chad Everett and my daddy was cool. Do you understand? Bill Gaither had a perm. Do you remember? Bill Gaither had a perm because Chad Everett and my daddy also had perms in the 70s. Do you understand? All the cool men had perms and leisure suits. Bill Gaither used to wear a polyester leisure suit with a turtleneck like the whole cast of Lost in Space. He wore a turtleneck and white shoes. He was awesome. He was so cool. He wore white shoes like Pat Boone and Chad Everett. And my daddy wore white shoes in the 70s. Understand, he was so cool. And he came out singing all of these new songs. And at my church, I'm telling you, we could not sing Bill Gaither's songs. They were new. They were new. And they were what my pastor called long-haired songs. Yeah. Bill Gaither's hair might have been long, but remember, it was permed. <laughs> so it hugged his head. Yeah. But now he sang songs that the older folks did not like. Do y'all remember this? Because many of you were younger folks then, but do you remember how the older folks could not stand Bill Gaither? Do you remember why? Because he sang songs like, in his white shoes, get all excited, go tell everybody, get all excited, are you kidding me? Nobody in my church ever got excited about nothing. <laughs> Nobody got time for that. Get all excited. Bill Gaither in his perm and his leisure suit was all excited. We didn't want none of that. But that wasn't even, that wasn't his nuclear song. I mean, he had a song that was like a nuclear bomb in my church. And it was a really simple song. It was called, Let's Just Praise the Lord. Some of you know that song? Let's just praise the Lord. Oh my goodness. But do you remember what happened when Bill Gaither would sing that song? He would get to that line, let's just. Let's just lift our hands to heaven. No, we won't. No, we won't. You remember this, don't you? Some of you remember this. We couldn't sing, let's just praise the Lord at my church. No way, no how. Ain't nobody got time for that because there might actually break out into some hand lifting. Isn't that strange? I am now an old man. Bill Gaither's now an old man. If you love his music, and a lot of us do, you can now catch his music on an infomercial on PBS right after Antiques Roadshow. If you turn it on, you'll see the Bill Gaither reunions. Half those old people still got perms. <laughs> they still got perms or wigs. I, I, I don't know. It's funny how all those young, wild, get all excited, lifting our hands to heaven. I mean, they shook the church in their day, and now they're old, and they're still shaking it. God bless them. God bless them. Some of it shakes when they're not even moving anymore. 
but they, they created an amazing revival of, of church music. An amazing revival of, of church music. And, and it had its life. It had a shelf life. And, and, and now that, that time is passing. I can remember when Because He Lives landed in the Baptist hymnal. It was a new song. You know, Because He Lives has been the favorite song now of a whole different segment of our church. There was a stretch of about 10 years where we would sing Because He Lives at every funeral. Do you understand? Because He Lives kind of replaced beautiful isle of somewhere and before long all the people who love because he lives will do their funerals too and you know what we're singing after that it sounds like it'll be I can only imagine but you understand these are human traditions and they have a shelf life sort of like the milk in your fridge now we love the songs we love the kind of worship that we all grew up with but you can't hold on to that. The woman says, my ancestors, our, our tradition involves worshiping on this mountain. But the Jews, they have another tradition. You, you see, our tradition is to sing hymns out of hymnals with the piano and organ. But, but down at Hillview, they, they go wild down there and, and, and they don't even have a hymnal. And, and they sing with bands and drums and lights and smoke. Who's right? And Jesus would say, dear woman, dear sir, the time is coming. Indeed, it's already come. And that's the key. Indeed, it's already come when it doesn't matter what mountain you're standing on. It doesn't matter if there's drums and smoke or hymnals and perms even. It just doesn't matter. The time is coming. Indeed, it's already come. Now, what's his point there? It's already come, he says. Already here. Those things already don't matter. Worship used to be about which mountain you were standing on. Worship used to depend upon who your ancestors were. Worship used to depend upon this guilt and this need to be expunged of the guilt of our sin. It used to involve sacrifices and, and the slaughtering of animals. But Jesus says the time is coming. Indeed, it's now come. What's happened? When Jesus says the time is coming, actually, it's, it's come now. What's he talking about? What made the difference in worship? Say it. Jesus. Jesus made the difference in worship. He still makes the difference in worship. Jesus is the focus of our worship now. When Jesus says, you know, that, that may have been fine for back then, but something's happened now. What had happened is that Jesus had come. And so worship forever is changed. It's no longer needing the sacrifice of animals in order to provide the blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus paid it all. Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins. We don't worship now with this horrible sense of guilt and shame. We worship with joy and grace and forgiveness. The time has come because Jesus has come. And it doesn't really matter about the songs or the style. It doesn't matter if the preacher's wearing uh, Sanzibel pants from the department store or, or blue jeans with holes. It doesn't matter, Jesus says. None of that matters. None of that matters because the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. So when you come to worship, when you come to worship at Woodburn Baptist Church, we want spirit and truth. 
those things. Now, other things will come and other things will go. And we'll either learn to hang on to them or we'll learn to let go of them. But the two things that we cannot exchange, we cannot give up on are spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. What's it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, Jesus himself is the truth. When Jesus says we worship in in truth, it means that there is content to what we worship. It's not anything goes. We always come back to the truth of God's word. We always come back to the truth that is Christ. And we focus and we dig into the truth and we don't ever give up on the truth. We preach the truth. We sing the truth. We live the truth. We celebrate the truth that is Christ. It has everything to do with truth. So that means it's not just about feelings. It's not coming in and and trying to lose ourselves in some sort of worship emotion. It's not about that. It it is truth. It's always truth. But it's also spirit. God is spirit. God is spirit, he tells the woman. And therefore, you have to worship him in spirit. If God were human, then he might be pleased with our human traditions. But The human traditions are more about us than they are about God. God wants us to worship in spirit. So so what does that mean? I want to do a demonstration. Rod, if you could help me. Uh, We'll need the piano mic in the overflow, and we'll need everybody to be very, very quiet. Uh, Fun with physics here. There is a phenomenon in, in physics, in acoustical sciences, called sympathetic vibration. Sympathetic vibration. What that means is if you have two two objects that are identical, if you have two objects that vibrate on the same wavelength, then if you make one move or vibrate, the other one will automatically move with it and you don't even have to touch it. They're in tune together. They are harmonically tuned together. And it works well with the piano. Now, we're going to have to be very, very quiet. What I'm going to ask Rod to do is to sing a note. Just sing a note. He's not going to to, to play the piano. He's going to play a note so he can sing it back. But then we're just going to let the piano sing back to Rod, and it will. It will. We'll have to be very, very quiet. But again, Rod's going to sing a note. And then if you'll listen very, very closely, it's going to be faint. But listen You're going to hear the string on that piano, the very string that he sings. That string will ring back to him. He won't have to touch it. Okay? Rod, make it work. Do it again. I can hear it clearly here. Do you all hear it out there? If the person next to you has a metal plate in their head, it won't work. It, it won't work on your pew. Can you give us a little more volume on the piano? Uh, Chad, let's try it one more time. Uh. There was a famous case in Scotland Yard where a Stradivarius violin was stolen. Priceless violin, and very few in the world, but there was one other just like it. If you've ever heard the story of the detective who found the stolen violin, they suspected that the Stradivarius violin was hidden inside a house, but they didn't know where. So the detective took 
an identical Stradivarius violin tuned perfectly. He would walk through the house and play. He would play a note, and then he would stop and listen. Play a note, stop and listen. Walking through the house, he'd play a note, stop and listen. Got to a certain place where he played a note, he stopped. When he listened, he heard music. From behind the drywall, the other violin was singing back. It's called sympathetic vibration. It's, it's amazing, uh, amazing. And I bring this up to you. I want you to understand this concept because I believe that this is a good analogy for what it means for us to worship God in, in spirit. You see, the fact is our hearts are supposed to be in tune with him. My heart, my life is supposed to be so taken over by the Holy Spirit that when he moves, I move. That when he comes to me, I respond automatically with my praise, with, with my worship. Jesus says God's looking for worshipers who, who will worship in, in spirit. Understand, when you come into this place to worship, it's not supposed to be the music that moves you. It's not supposed to be the preacher who moves you. It's not supposed to be just being together with all your old friends and it just makes you feel better. It's not supposed to be the old friends that move you. Now, that's not worship. I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad, but please don't confuse that kind of excitement, that kind of response. Don't confuse that with worship. Worship happens when my heart sings back the song that God is singing to me. Worship happens when the Holy Spirit begins to move and shake this place, and my heart begins to shake with him. Do you understand? It's a sort of sympathetic vibration. It only happens when my heart is in tune with the heart of the Holy Spirit. And when that is true, then we begin to move together. He begins to conduct this worship service. You understand? God's looking for worshipers, the Scripture says. Worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So whatever else can ever be said about Woodburn Baptist Church's worship life, let it always be said that we're worshipers who worship God in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Now let me say a few more things very practically about worship at our church. And I want you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to give you three principles for, for a vision for worship at our church. Three principles, there's nothing new about these, and there's nothing radical about these. It's, it's, it's strictly biblical. But I want us to come back to the Bible, and if we're going to talk about what worship's going to look like at Woodburn Baptist Church, let's come back to biblical principles. And then if we want to talk about other things, contemporary, traditional, whatever, we, we can do that, but let's base everything on biblical principles. And let's start with the principle that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. I find this to be one of the plainest and one of the most wonderful verses about how you do worship in the Bible, but I don't find many churches anywhere that do it this way. But notice what it says. Brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues. What? One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. I just love that. 
I love that. It's a very simple picture of worship from the New Testament. But the idea is when you come to worship, everybody comes prepared to offer something. Notice that when Paul describes a vision for worship, it's never about the people on stage. I'm not even sure Paul had a stage. Understand? But what he had were believers filled with the Spirit who came together. When they came to worship, they did not come to watch a show. They did not come to observe. They didn't come to sit in pews and watch people on a stage worship. They came to worship. And at Woodburn Baptist Church, you've got to understand, worship is not what happens on the stage. Worship is what happens in the pews where you're sitting. And if worship today is lame, it's because you're lame. I mean, is there any other way to say it? If worship stinks, you're the one stinking it up. Because you were supposed to come with some preparation for worship. It's a wonderful picture of brothers and sisters in Christ who come together and use their gifts. So at Woodburn Baptist Church, let's continue to use as many people's gifts as possible. As many people as possible. This should never be a one-man show. It should never be a place where only the very gifted or the, or the ones on the paid staff ever get to come up and, and share their gifts. It's supposed to be about the body of Christ. Each one is important as the other. And all of us coming together to worship. Now, now honestly, our culture is not helping us here because everywhere else you go in life, you go as, a, as, as some sort of observer. You go like, you know, the, the judges at, at, at American Idol, and after everything you watch, you critique it and evaluate it. Like your purpose is just to sit back and, and thumbs up or thumbs down. But that's not worship. It's never been worship. If when you walk out of worship, your only response is to critique it, then you've missed it. You haven't worshipped. You haven't worshipped. You come in with the preparation to participate, whether it's to sing or whether it's to pray or whether it's to fall on your knees and worship him or whether you come prepared to lead the congregation in some way. But we want to use as many people, as many gifts as possible. We always want to do this. We always want to do this. That's why I love a choir. I love a choir. Because the choir uses so many more voices than, than just a soloist or a duet. But guess what? I love solos and duets also. Some of you got a song to sing and you need to be singing it. I, I want you to sing it. I want to hear it. That's why I love praise bands and, and, and praise teams. It's more and more people using their gifts. You understand? We, we want to use as many gifts as possible. Now, it's difficult because sometimes somebody's got a gift that you don't necessarily appreciate. You've been in that church? Somebody steps up and says, I just got to sing this song that the Lord gave me. And then they sing it, and you're thinking, give it back, give it back. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, it's risky. That kind of worship is risky. And honestly, somebody has a gift that you don't necessarily understand. But, but you know what? We're still the body of Christ. And is the body the... the the hand can't say to the foot, hey, because you're not a hand, I don't have any use for you. The, the ear can't say to the mouth, hey, because you can't hear, because you don't do what I do, I don't have any use for you. We're the body. We're important to each other in ways that we don't even understand yet. 
So we want to use as many gifts as possible. Always fanning the flame of the Holy Spirit in the worship life of this congregation. And, and this is where it starts. You, you help people use their gifts. And that's worship. That, that's worship. Principle number two. Back up to verse 16. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16. This is what I call the amen test. And this is helpful. If you really want to evaluate how something went in worship or, or, or whether or not something worked in a worship service, you come back to this. Let's start at verse 15. Now, I just have to tell you, Paul's talking about praying and speaking in tongues here. Don't flip out. Don't flip out. Stay with me because Paul's talking about these things in order to give an important principle for worship. Well, then what should I do? I will pray in the Spirit, but I'll also pray in words I understand. I'll sing in the Spirit, but I'll also sing in words I understand. Here we go, verse 16. For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? Now, if you got the King James or another translation where it says, how can they praise God along with you? Literally what Paul says there is, how can anybody say amen to that? How can anybody say amen if you stand up in worship and you do something so weird that nobody gets it? If you get up in worship and you rattle off speaking in tongues or whatever you do, but the whole congregation is just left going, what in the world was that? It's a simple principle, but when we, when we come together in worship, when we, when we offer something in worship, you want to offer something that you have the reasonable expectation that the people present can understand what you're doing. A, a reasonable expectation that it's not just that they'll understand it, but that they might want to say amen to that. Understand? I think that's a perfect and beautiful principle for, for trying to learn how to get along in worship. Because sometimes the youth will want to do something that the senior adults won't necessarily understand. So you might have to take the extra step to help us understand why it matters so much to you. Why it speaks to your heart. Because I promise if we can understand how it moves you, it will probably help it move us. We have to take that extra step to help each other understand what we're doing. It's the amen test. It's important in worship. One more thing. Turn back to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is where we found verses that uh, became the theme for our construction project, the, the next building. We use the word next to describe that building because of the way the word next is used in Psalm 78 over and over and over. This is hard for some of us. But I can't tell you how important this is. Psalm 78, we're going to start with verse 4. Notice the priority all through Scripture of the next generation. Notice what it says. Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. He issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so that the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born. I love that. That would be my grandchildren. Even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. My great, great grandchildren. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Over and over and over, 
the Bible stresses the priority of the next generation. The next generation. This is difficult because I can remember when I was the next generation, and it's hard to believe that I'm not anymore. I, I used to, for the longest time, I thought I was always the youngest guy in the room. And it turns out I'm now among the oldest in the room, most anywhere I go. And I'm just middle-aged. But our culture, our community is so filled with young people. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But the problem is sometimes we, we forget to notice them. We forget to understand how important they are. We forget that our primary goal as the people of God is to make sure that the next generation falls in love with him. We forget that. And when it comes to worship, when it comes to church, we forget that too. We forget that. The thing is, those of us who are older, we have seniority, and we're writing the checks. And so we imagine then that somehow we should be the center of things. Because we used to be, and we kind of always have been. And we have this tendency to want to make sure that worship continues to speak to our generation, the Bill Gaither generation. We know we all had perms in the 70s. We've gone over that, you remember? But the point is, uh, our priority, our very important task is to give this church away to the next generation. And the sooner, the better. Always the sooner, the better. Because we want them to fall in love with the Savior. We want them to catch fire, to love Him and serve Him while they're young. We don't want them to wait till they're 40 years old, have three kids, and then come back. Do you understand? It is a priority all through Scripture. And we have to do that at Woodburn Baptist. And worship is one of the places where it has to happen. We have to prioritize the next generation. We have to. We just have to. Not because we want to or not because we necessarily always enjoy it, but because it's the only way this church stays alive. It's the only way. You ever seen a church die? You ever seen a little church out in the country and it just dwindles and dwindles and then finally they shut the doors and it's torn down or it becomes an antique mall? You've seen that happen? It's the same story every time. The same story every time. You will have a group of older people who get older and older and who lock that place down so that it never changes. They will insist on having it their way and nothing will change and they have it their way. Until they're all dead. But in the process, they kill the church with them. I'm not making that up. You know that's true, right? It's what happens. Because anytime a church stops reaching young people, whenever you look at a church and you don't see young families anymore, that is a bad sign. That is a bad sign. That is a church in decline. And if we start looking around here and we don't see young families, guess what? I'll do about 15 funerals and we'll shut these doors. And this place would make a fantastic antique mall. It's always about the next generation. It, it always is. Man, if you want to talk about music. You ever talk to Don Clark, uh, uh, one of our amazing piano players, or, or Marilyn Hester, one of the greatest ever? Marilyn Hester will tell you that she was playing piano when she was seven years old. Yeah, when she was seven years old, she took over the instrument at her church. She was seven. You understand? She was the next generation. 
Don wasn't, you still are, Don, you're still hip and cool. Don, the, the next generation, but, but you understand how these things move, how generation folds into generation. And, and back in Don and Marilyn's day, in, in my day, almost every kid took piano lessons. As a matter of fact, most families tried to have a piano in the house. It was just sort of a middle-class America thing. But if you could have a piano in your house so maybe somebody would accidentally learn to play it, I mean, everybody tried to have a piano in their house, but, but no more. No more. We have kids in our church growing up musically. Some of them are playing piano. God bless them. I hope they turn out to be fantastic. But, but we got more kids learning guitar. And we got kids learning drums. What? Yeah, drums. They love drums. If we got a seven-year-old who plays drums, he's just as important to put on the stage, just like when they put seven-year-old Marilyn Hester on the stage when she was a kid. You understand? This is how it happens. It's, it's just how it happens. Always, always, we want our kids and grandkids to love the Lord. We want them to love worship. They shouldn't have to wait till we die to sing the songs that light their hearts on fire for him. And they shouldn't have to leave our church and go to another church so they can worship him the way their generation loves to worship him. They shouldn't have to leave. They shouldn't have to wait till they bury us. You understand? This is something we do together. We are the body of Christ. And when it comes right down to it, red letters, human traditions don't matter. Your favorite song is your favorite song, but that does not mean your grandchildren will love it. Honestly, I find no reason to teach our kids how to sing Bringing in the Sheaves. I can't think of one good reason why they have to learn Bringing in the Sheaves. There are some songs that are so good, though. They're the songs that we take to the grave. There are songs that we want to sing, and we can imagine singing at our funeral, honestly, but then there are some songs that, you know, that their shelf life has expired, that they don't speak anymore. And sometimes we just have to be willing to let things go. Because Jesus says time is coming. Indeed, it's already here, that the time is here. But when it comes to worship, these, these traditions that you focus on, that they're not the focus. It's not about style. It's not about personalities. It's not even about young and old. It's about Christ. That's why Jesus says, you know, the time is coming. In fact, it's already here. When God's looking for worshipers, worshipers who worship him, spirit and truth. It's about spirit and truth. Our hearts in perfect tune with the Holy Spirit then we will move with him, we'll vibrate with him. And if we're in perfect tune with the Holy Spirit, guess what? We will be in tune with one another. God's looking for worshipers who will worship him, spirit and truth. Let me say a prayer and then let's worship him. God, we thank you so much for almost 150 years at Woodburn Baptist Church. We thank you for a church that's always known how to worship in spirit and truth. 
We thank you, Lord, for a church that's always prized the next generation, always invested in young people, always encouraged and always learned how to sing along with one another. Lord, we thank you for a church that's never had a worship war. We thank you, Lord, for a church that's committed to spirit and truth, and we ask you, Lord Jesus, to bring a revival of spirit and truth in this house today and for the days to come. Lord Jesus, we pray that old folks and young folks together will continue to dream dreams and see visions, just like the Bible says. We pray, Lord, that our hearts will continue to sing songs together and pray prayers and read your word, and that gifts will be fanned into flame, Lord God, so that whenever we come into this house to worship, Human traditions won't be the focus, and, and personal preferences and opinions won't be the focus, Lord, but that Jesus Christ will be the focus, and we'll fall together at your feet, Lord Christ, and worship in spirit and truth. Oh, Lord Jesus, let it be. Let it be. Let it be in this worship service. Let it be in this church forever till you come. Let us, Lord, worship you in spirit and truth. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.